Well, good morning, New City. It's a privilege to be with you all. My name is Hardy Reynolds, uh, campus minister at University of Central Florida with RUF. I uh, was with y'all a couple of weeks ago, and and we looked at uh, basically the the destination or the purpose of the church of the Christian life, and, and we saw that uh, our our destiny as Christians is to be citizens of this true new city that we are all headed towards. And what this new city is characterized by is a place where there's no more pain, where there's no more suffering, sadness, death, and we will for all eternity, live happily ever after with our God, we will dwell with him. And so we looked at that as our destiny. And this morning, I want to look at another idea of um, if that's our destiny in the journey of the Christian faith, what do we have right now along the way to give us encouragement and strength? And we're going to look at one amazing gift that God has given us, and it is his word, the scriptures. And we're going to be looking at this idea from uh, Romans. Uh, Paul writes this to a church in Rome, and he is going to be speaking on the purpose and the gift of the scriptures. For Paul, that would have been the Old Testament, uh, but as we'll see this morning, it has application for uh, the New Testament as well. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Romans 15, verses 1 through 13. Hear God's word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failing of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you know each and every one of uh, the hearts in this room, and I take great comfort in that, um, that though I do not know what each of these individuals carry, you do. And so I pray by the power of your gospel and the preaching of your word that you would meet each one of us um, in that good news. For those coming in that may be uh, too disrupted, uh, Father, by the power of your gospel, would you comfort them? And those coming in may be too comfortable, 
Would you, by the power of your gospel, disrupt them that they might follow in faithfulness the call we have to follow after your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, in uh, campus ministry, I talk to a lot of people. I make my introduction a lot um, as we uh, meet students on campus each and every day. And sometimes I'll get the response of, oh, Hardy, that's an interesting uh, first name. And to which I'll respond, well, actually, my first name is uh, Thomas. And depending on their circles, they'll potentially respond with excitement, oh, Tom Hardy, like the actor or the wrestler, Um, to which then I'll respond, actually, it's the 19th century English novelist and poet, Um, which one student told me that's kind of lame. And um, (laughs) I didn't name myself, but... Uh, That was a passion of my father's in college in English literature, and so hence the literary name. Well, for me, uh, one of my passions in college was campus ministry. I was involved with uh, RUF throughout my time in campus ministry. I actually became a Christian right before coming to college. And so RUF was a place of of growth and encouragement uh, for me and my faith. I actually became a Christian in a lunch meeting with a high school mentor. I was meeting with him the summer in between high school and college, and he asked me, what do you think you're going to study? What do you think you want to do with your life, Hardy? And I told him, well, my dad's a dentist, my grandfather's a dentist, my great-grandfather was a dentist, I think I'm going to try and be a dentist. Um, And so he said, well, have you ever thought about uh, ministry, vocational ministry? And immediately, I had this sense of feeling inadequate, um, a sense of lack and imposter syndrome. And I told him as much. And I I said, you know, really, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I'm spiritually strong enough uh, to lead people. And I'll be forever grateful for my mentor's response. Instead of saying, oh, well, yeah, you are. Here are your gifts that I see in you. He simply shared the gospel with me. And as many of you know, that means good news. And what he shared with me was the story of Jesus' baptism from the Gospel of Mark. Right before he started and began his ministry, uh, John baptized him as, as he's coming up from the water. It says that the heavens opened and the Spirit descended on him. And there was a voice that said, This is my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. As my mentor shared that story with me, something happened in my heart where for the first time I realized that if by faith I'm united to Christ, that the status that Jesus has shared for all eternity as a beloved son in whom the father is well pleased, that now is my status by faith. That is a gift that I can never lose. Now, heading into that meeting, I had been studying Scripture for probably a year and a half in a Bible study with friends, but I thought Scripture and my study of it uh, really was based more on my performance, my understanding, what I was bringing to God in my actions and obedience. And so in that moment, when I realized that that was my status as as, as a beloved child, a beloved son in whom the Father is well pleased, a status that I could never lose, It hit me simultaneously like a favorite blanket and a freight train. Favorite blanket because like like I just said, I had the full unwavering smile of the Father, this status of beloved that I could never lose. And yet it hit me like a freight train 
because I realized all the ways that I was living self-preferentially, all the ways that I was trying to please God and to please others selfishly, that had to change. And I wonder if you know the force of grace in your life, if you can resonate with that. And I wonder if, like me, you also have had seasons, even when that grace has been so encouraging, you also have seasons where you forget the force of grace. You are prone to discouragement. You're prone to believing uh, lies. One such season for me was in seminary when I was training to, to be a pastor. And some of those old feelings of feeling inadequate and not spiritually strong enough to lead people uh, came back. And a couple of my friends and professors knew about this struck, struggle. And one day, my friend was thrift shopping, and she saw this book, and she got it for me. And later, she would give it to me and said, this is your story. And what it was, it was a copy of um, the novelist I'm named after, Thomas Hardy. And one of his uh, last novels titled The Well-Beloved And in giving me that gift, what she was doing in essence was saying, here's a reminder that in whatever season, this is true of you. You are Thomas Hardy, the well-beloved. We all need those reminders. And so why do I share that part of my story with you all? Well, I share it because in our passage that we just read, what Paul is doing um, to the Roman church and to us today by the power of the Spirit He's making the claim that for all people, Jew and Gentile alike, that when they read scripture, when they read the story, they are to hear similar words that my friend spoke to me, that this is your story given to you for your encouragement and for your hope and instruction. And And the question I want us to consider from the passage today is, how do we read scripture that it might serve for those purposes, for our instruction, encouragement, endurance, and hope? Maybe said another way, when you read Scripture, when, when you are reading Scripture in your own private time, do you read it as a story of God's faithfulness and His mercy to you for those very purposes, to instruct you, to encourage you, to give you endurance, and ultimately hope? Or do you read it in other ways? So often, if, if you're like me, I can fall into this. I read it out of duty. I can just read it because I know I'm supposed to. Um, maybe you, you read it out of uh, a feeling of discouragement. I'm not getting what I should be out of this time. Maybe you are here this morning not convinced of the truth of Scripture, and your relationship to Scripture is one more of suspicion. If it seems irrelevant, it seems like it's not for uh, us today, it's for a time back then, um, but it's not an enlightened book that is meant for all people at all times. However you read it, I think what Paul's um, purpose in giving this passage to the Roman church and us today is for us to move from potentially a posture of resistance towards Scripture to relishing it, to relishing the promises that we have. And we see these throughout all of Scripture. But for Paul here, he's speaking specifically to the Old Testament. And so, Paul holds out his view of the Old Testament scriptures in our passage in verse 4. And he says this, All of scripture was written for your instruction, for your encouragement, and your hope. And that's what we're going to look at today in three points. It has a purpose for instruction. It's a pathway of endurance and encouragement. And ultimately, it it holds out a promise of hope. And so, 
how does it accomplish this? Well, the whole of scripture, all of it is unified and holding before its original listeners and us a unified, unchanging purpose that God has for his people. Jay Sklar is a covenant uh, seminary professor, Old Testament professor, and he puts it this this way, referring to God's purpose. The purpose is for humanity to enjoy fellowship with God, reflecting his character in the world, and in this way, filling all the earth with his kingdom of justice and mercy, love and holiness for his glory and our good. And Paul, in writing to the Roman church, he's intimately aware of this purpose. And the passage we just read, he's in the middle of a conversation about Christian liberty or Christian freedom and how it's to be exercised in the context of Christian community. And he's been addressing two categories of Christians. He he names them as the strong and the weak. And the strong Christian in this context are Christians who are rightly convinced that for them, all food is clean. And the weak Christian here are those convinced that some foods, given the cultural context and background, are actually unclean. And so the strong Christians, those are likely Jewish Christians like Paul or other Gentile Christians convinced that they can eat all foods. And the weaker Christians are likely Jewish Christians that though their conscience, though, is burdened and they cannot convince themselves that eating all foods um, is actually clean. And so what Paul's doing here, he's just urged the strong Christians, whom he considers himself, to not despise the weaker members, to not distress them, to not damage them. And he's just urged the weaker members not to judge. And then he exhorts the strong. He says three things. He says, first, to bear with the failings of the weak. Second, to not please themselves. And finally, third, please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And so the first, to bear, that can either mean to just simply put up or tolerate, uh, or it can mean to carry, to support. And the context here makes it obvious that Paul is talking about that second aspect, that the strong members in Christian community are not to simply tolerate, but to carry, to support weaker members, to love them in that way. But then he goes on and he says, it's also not for the strong to please themselves, And why might he have to say that? That might seem obvious to us, but that's our, that's the posture of our heart, is it not? To live self-preferentially, to live to please ourselves. And Paul is saying in the Christian community, that ought not to be so. That ought not to be the way. The strong are actually to bear with the weak, not damaging their conscience, but finally to use their strength that he might please his neighbor for his good. And so that's what we see Paul is doing. And he roots all of these reasonings and these exhortations in the person of Christ. Look with me at verse three. He says, for Christ did not please himself. One commentator, he said that this phrase sums up both the meaning of the incarnation and the character of Christ's earthly life. Instead of pleasing himself, Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, gave himself to the will of the Father for the good of humanity. And Paul shows this not by telling a story from Jesus' life or referring to the incarnation, but he does so by quoting 
the scriptures by quoting the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 69. And it's this psalm that is all about the unjust sufferings of a righteous man. And Paul quotes part of verse 9 in that psalm, and he says, The reproaches or the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And what, what, what he's doing is he's, he's showing that Christ so thoroughly, so completely identified himself with the will and purpose of God the Father that the insults intended for God actually fell on Christ. And then Paul does this amazing thing where he takes his audience and us on this amazing aside, and he gives his view not only of that one verse in Psalm 69, but all of Scripture. It's as if he's saying this, if this one verse in this one psalm is able to teach us how we are to relate in community to one another, how much more then is the entire Old Testament written for this instructive purpose? And that's what he says in verse 4, in saying, for whatever, for whatever was written in former days, he's referring to the whole Old Testament scriptures. And in saying, was written for our instruction, he's, he's showing that he has an incredibly high view of Scripture, of, it, of its purpose, that there is not a single part of the Old Testament Scriptures that is not able to encourage, instruct, give you endurance, and ultimately hope. One commentator, John Stott, he said, Paul, in his high view of Scripture, is laying out basically five things that he believes about all of Scripture. The first is that Paul views the Old Testament not only as written to and for those back then, but for the Roman church then and also for us today. And so far from being a distant book, irrelevant to our time, Paul is saying it is enduringly applicable to your life. All of Scripture is. And so it's not just written for those people there and then, but it's written for you today to draw instruction and encouragement. And secondly, he's showing that Old Testament and all of Scripture has this inclusive value. And only quoting half a verse from Psalm 69 to make his point about Christ not pleasing himself, he's saying whatever is written in the past is for us, that the whole Old Testament is given for believers' instruction you can learn from the entirety of it. There's not one page that you can flip to that you cannot get encouragement instruction from in the scriptures. It's a gift. And he's saying that they can learn on every page the purpose that God has for his people. Later in this passage, he says, in order to show God's enduring purpose to unite Jew and Gentile, in fellowship and praise of him for their good and his glory, Paul goes on to quote from every part of the Old Testament. He quotes Moses in verse 10 from Deuteronomy when it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. He quotes the historical narratives from 2 Samuel 22 when King David declares, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. He quotes from the prophets when he says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him, will the Gentiles hope? And then finally, he quotes from the writings or the Psalms. And he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And what he's doing is he's showing this inclusive value that all scripture has. In other words, there's not a part 
that is not intended to bring you instruction, encouragement, endurance, and ultimately hope. And that's not to say that every part of the Old Testament is equally clear. I want to relieve you of of that notion, Uh, or even equally important. Jesus makes that point to the Pharisees who were overemphasizing certain uh, passages at the neglect of doing justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But it is to say that all of Scripture is valuable. And so thirdly, not only is all of Scripture valuable, the reason why it's valuable, Paul says, is that it instructs us in our understanding of Christ, who he is and what he's done. And this is Paul agreeing with Jesus's own view of Scripture. When he meets his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, they are understandably sad, discouraged. And what does Jesus do? He instructs them from all of the Old Testament, the, the, the Moses, the prophets, the writings, about everything concerning himself. And this is Paul saying, all of it, for whatever is written, points us to Jesus. And that is good news, because it points us to who he is and what he's done. And, and fourthly, it, it gives Paul's view that it's a practical book. It has practical purpose. In, in summarizing uh, one of these purposes in another letter in 2 Timothy, he says, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Or the very next verse in that letter says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Psalms in Psalm 119 says, this is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. And again, my soul, it clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Or Paul writing to another church in Corinth says, now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Scripture is able to do all of these things to make us wise for salvation, to teach, to reprove, to correct, to train in righteousness, to comfort us in affliction and in our sufferings. It's able to give life. And Paul adds here to the Roman church, it gives encouragement, endurance, and ultimately hope. And he concludes, uh, Stott does, that is, with this final reason. Why is it able to do all these things? Well, it is from God. That's why. That's why the scriptures are able to do this. In verse 4, Paul equates the encouragement and the endurance that scripture gives. And then immediately in verse 5, look what he does. He says, these are attributed to God himself. May the God of endurance and of encouragement grant you. This flows from God. These good gifts of instruction, of endurance, encouragement, and hope. It is from the very character and nature of God to give you those things. So what does that mean for us? Well, one, it means that scripture should be a part of our our daily life, wherever we find ourselves on this journey of the Christian faith. And the good news is that learning from scripture is less like having to go to a tutoring session for your least favorite class where you're like, I hate this class. Why do I have to learn this? But it's more like learning something that brings you joy. For me, that's wake surfing. I never knew how. It was a blast. Um, but it's, it's meant to bring you joy as you learn the scriptures. And that's what Paul is saying. Now, I may have lost several of you for the many minutes I was talking about the benefits because you might've been thinking, that's not my experience. 
When I read scripture, that's not how I experience it. And a couple of things might be happening for you if that is what's going on. Um, One thing I would say is you might actually be receiving those very things. And just as you can't remember what you had for lunch last Wednesday, that meal nourished you, it strengthened you. And so your time in the scriptures, even though you can't point to the thing that you were instructed by, encouraged by, given strength and endurance, it is doing those things as you show up daily to receive from him, to be strengthened and nourished in your faith. That could be one thing that is going on. It is working even if you are not able in this season to point exactly to your takeaways. But another thing that might be going on, and take heart, I mean this as encouragement, is you could be reading it wrong. And what I mean by that is I fall into this all the time where, where you start to look to your reading of scripture as to, to bring some performance to God, maybe to um, ensure your status uh, before him, to, to get a sense of your okayness uh, before almighty God. And what scripture time and time again is going to say, you are receiving from the mouth of God his revelation about who he is and what he's done for you in the scriptures. And so his purpose in giving you that is not for you to show up and try and prove yourself to him, but to give you a gift. And that's the second point we have. Scripture gives encouragement and endurance. It's a pathway for those very things. Um, Paul knows that we get discouraged. He knew this. He himself was often discouraged and struggling. Um, The Old Testament writers, they know that this life is hard. It is painful and often um, discouraging. And the reason they know that is because God knows this. God knows that there is pain in this broken and fallen world. And rather than what we can sometimes imagine God as waiting impatiently um, or maybe even even disapprovingly with how we are navigating this broken and fallen world, Um, he is ready and longs to give you fresh encouragement and endurance for this life. And in our discouragement, we can kind of imagine God as uh, a posture of almost looking down and saying like, hey there, discouraged, doubtful, downcast, weary. I thought you'd be further along by now. Are you really still struggling with that question? Are you still questioning me in that area? Are you still struggling to follow me? I thought you'd be further along. We can sometimes put that tone on our God. And what we see here is that is actually in his very nature to give He waits to grant you fresh encouragement. He waits to show you his delight and pleasure in you through his scriptures and through his promises. God knows this life requires endurance. He knows you're going to get uh, discouraged. Paul, he uses the metaphor of the Christian life being an endurance race in other places, and he kind of brings in that idea of our need for endurance here. I want y'all to just consider with me one of the most well-known endurance races Uh, That takes place in the month of July. It's the Tour de France. Uh, If you're not familiar with the race, uh, there are 21 grueling days of cycling. Um, There's many teams. Each team has eight riders per team. And the daily rides average over 100 miles 
Um, they are scaling some of the largest mountains in Europe on a daily basis. The average speed often exceeds 30 miles an hour. Uh, these riders crash at going 30 miles an hour and just have to like hop back up and, and keep riding. It is a painful race. And one doctor who specializes in the science of longevity and he focuses on endurance athletes, he said this, not to diminish the pain that an NFL running back experiences being tackled weekly, but the level of pain these riders must endure is monumentally greater than the pain of American football players. So what's the point? The point is God knows this life in a fallen world is painful. He knows that this uh, life requires endurance. He knows the fatigue. He knows the discouragement you feel. And he waits to pour out fresh endurance and encouragement for you. He waits and longs to give that to you. Consider King David. He, he wrote one of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 23. And he doesn't write these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He doesn't write that because that is necessarily his constant ongoing experience of life. No, he writes that because he knows something of the anti-Psalm 23 experience. David Powelson is an author um, that actually wrote an anti-Psalm 23. And he, he says this, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing is quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark path. Still, I insist I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me. Sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever? Homeless, free falling into a void? Sartre said, hell is other people, but I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. It's an anti-Psalm 23, and if we're honest, we are prone to those experiences. We're, we're prone to believing that, prone to discouragement, prone to fatigue, and Paul is inviting you and me this morning to see that the God of all encouragement and endurance knows this and longs to give you fresh encouragement and endurance for this Christian life. And ultimately, what that will lead to is that you might abound in hope. And that's our final point, a promise of hope. When we take our eyes off of 
uh, ourselves, seeking to please ourselves, seeking to secure our own protection and safety. And we, we shift our eyes um, when we flee that posture and we shift our eyes to God, we will get to see him rightly. In other words, when we admit that that daily posture of self-preferential love, of, of preferring self over others, that you and I cannot break out of that posture uh, in and of ourselves, that we actually have to have a power outside of us come and rescue us from that posture, then and only then will we be able to see the beauty and the reality of verse 3. Verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself. That Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking on a body that experienced pain, fatigue, he experienced the brokenness of our world, and he entered the dark realities of this rebellious world that are so often characterized by that anti-Psalm uh, 23 experience. And he did so in such a way not to please himself, but to please the heavenly father. And what was the father's pleasure? What was the father's will and purpose? Well, verse eight tells us, it says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises. the promises that were given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This purpose is said again in Acts 3, when it says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so what we see is in seeking to please the Father, Christ shares with all who believe in him the pleasure that the Father has in him. The pleasure that he has as the unique only Son of God, that for all of eternity that he is one in whom the Father is well pleased, he shares that with you. And how does he do that? He does it by going to the cross. He goes to the cross and he takes on all of God's just displeasure in all the ways that we live self-preferentially, um, self-righteously, selfishly, judgmentally, manipulatively, abusively, lustfully, on and on and on. He takes all of that on himself and he shares with you and I the status that he holds for all eternity as one in whom the Father is well pleased. That's your and my status. And now we are so often prone to look away from that title, that status we have, to look to the, uh, the creation or others that we might secure that sense of pleasure, to secure that sense of hope. But we can't do it. We can't find it. We can't in our own strength secure it. If we do, that endurance that we're looking for in and of ourselves will fail us. And so I want to conclude with this um, illustration and application. Consider, again, the, the Tour de France. Um, it is um, a fact that nobody has won this race without a great team. There's eight riders per team, but only one of them actually ever has a shot of winning the race. And the other seven riders, they are called domestiques or literally servants. And all their effort goes into helping this one rider finish the race victoriously. And what Paul, what he's, what he's saying in verse 8 
is you and I are not alone, but we have a servant. For I tell you, Christ became a servant, a servant to all who would believe in him, that you might experience the faithfulness of God, the encouragement and the endurance that he longs to provide you. And the sure promise that he, as your servant, will get you to the finish line of this Christian journey, that you might ultimately abound in hope. That's the beauty of this. So the concluding application is this. What do we do? What do we do in light of this? Well, I think what our passage is calling us to do is to despair. Despair of all false hopes. Despair of all ways and places that you might turn to try and find encouragement outside of Christ. And to trust. To trust this God of encouragement, endurance, and hope. To give you those very things. That one, he calls you into relationship with himself. That he has secured those things for you. Even though we so often run to look for those things in other places. And so tomorrow morning, what I want you to do, what I, what I want despair to look like is the first thing that you do. Or maybe it's after your feet have hit the ground. Um, but whenever you take that first look at your phone, whether that first click is to the news I want you to despair, despair of ever having the possibility of being all-knowing, of being able to get enough information to navigate this broken and fallen world. Uh, If your first click is to your bank account or to your investments, I want you to despair of ever being able to rely on your wealth or possessions to give you the security that you long for. Whether it is to your calendar, I want you to despair to despair of all hustleism or any sense of productivity management system that you might put in place that you can finally be pleased with yourself and your productivity, I want you to despair of that. If it is to your um, website that you have said, I will never visit that again, and maybe that, that promise was made the night before, I want you to despair of ever finding the pleasure there that you were made for to despair of that, all efforts of self-sufficient, uh, finding your security and pleasure, and look to the one who longs to give it to you, who did not please himself, but became a servant, that he might give and secure those very things for you. That's a promise and an invitation for all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, the servant who did not please himself, but uh, sought in his life, his death, his resurrection to please you. And he shares that status with us. Uh, Would each and every one of us grow in our understanding of that title, our, our status as those who are beloved in whom you are well pleased? And with that status, strengthen and encourage us to walk this, uh, this uh, life of faith with endurance, that we might love others, seeking not to please ourselves, but to please and build up our neighbor. And would you do this all for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen.